Wait a second. This isn't your grandma's cancer show. Not your grandma's cancer show. Hi, I'm Tatum Duroc. This is Not Your Grandma's Cancer Show. And today we are talking about our life's passion, the daily grind. The, eh, it pays the bills. Today we're talking about working after cancer. And however you feel about it, chances are those feelings might change radically. In a survey that Shine did, 53% of people didn't end up going back to the same work that they were doing before they were diagnosed. And so it's this time of huge shifts. And that little tiny question, that tiny question that, what do you do? now brings up these massive answers fraught with new cancer considerations, feelings of loss, of what we thought our career trajectory was going to be, and wondering, like, how are we going to deal with all of this on top of everything else? I mean, work stuff's overwhelming at the best of times. But that's why we're here today, and I have awesome guests to share their experiences, their expertise in working after cancer. I have the lovely Emily Hodge with me in the studio and she not only shifted her own career after cancer but she helps other people to do the same and we have George Norton who will be joining us later and George has been through this not once but twice. So he has a wealth of ideas and tips that he's going to be sharing with us. Hi, Emily. Hi, Tatum. How are you? I'm good. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm very pleased to be here. Yeah. So what was going on for you in your working life when you were diagnosed? I was sitting in a desk in Islington, loving the fact that I got to walk up and down Islington High Street, sometimes in a stop smoking outfit other times talking about Jamie Oliver's turkey twizzlers. <laughs> okay, I'm wondering <laughs> what kind of work that might so have been. So I was in the NHS um, for about 10 years and at the point that I was diagnosed, I was actually in public health and that meant that at the time I was doing health promotion. So I was working So the with, Twizzlers. Yeah, the Twizzlers. <laughs> it was when he kind of came out big and started talking about, you know, health in schools and diet and exercise. And we'd been working with lots of families um, in Islington, it happens to be. It was at the time the third most deprived borough of London. So it's this really big, um, you know, shift of this sort of perception of richness, but then these really, really... Um, areas where there were, you know, families who who were, you know, really poor and needed support to try and access things that, you know, other people maybe were. So we were helping people to kind of advocate for themselves in the community and to get kids to um, do some more exercise, to get their parents to help them to stop smoking. Um, it was really fun, actually. It was really active. It was very sort of out there as I said it was quite physical I was sort of visiting lots of schools and lots of organizations locally so I loved it um, and the slight irony was that I was also working on bowel cancer prevention really program <laughs> yeah and then I got bowel cancer and how old were you I was just 30 at the time 
Did you pick up any of the signs from being a part of that prevention no. awareness? Weirdly, not really. At the time, I was working slightly more on the strategy. It wasn't so much that here are the signs and here's what you've got to okay. do. It was a little bit more behind the scenes. Um, oddly, though, I remember talking to a colleague who was working on cervical cancer awareness, and we'd ended up having lots of conversations about sort of smear tests and cervical cancer. So I remember at the time thinking, this is this is interesting. Like that makes me want to go for my smear test. And of course, completely missing the fact that a 30 year old young, healthy woman actually was having bowel cancer at the time. It was just it was just one of those bizarre things where you're sort of put onto another way of thinking about the world. Yeah. And and speaking of another way of thinking about it, so so you were diagnosed mm. and what was your treatment protocol like? It was um, a reasonably normal one for a bowel cancer patient, although there were a couple of things that were quite um, a bit more radical. So because I had um, the cancer came as a result of lots of polyps and they found lots of polyps in my bowel, which meant that I'd be at huge risk of getting bowel cancer again if they didn't remove the bowel. So they did pretty radical surgery, um, which was to remove the whole of the large bowel and resection where my small bowel had been to my rectum. And I had a stoma for about a year and a half. Um, but I think because of that, um, it just led to lots of complications. So then my protocol was uh, like a six-month adjuvant um, chemotherapy, which I'm sure I probably would have, to would have tolerated okay, but I was already really depleted from the surgery. I wasn't really eating properly. I was just talking about this yesterday, actually, weirdly. You know when you're in that sort of state? I was actually just malnourished. I couldn't get enough food and water in me, so I was very thin. And then went going into chemotherapy in that state is just not good for anybody, really. And I happened to have just a really odd chemotherapy experience. I had all of the rare reactions that you're never meant to get. Like all of the 1%, you know when you're looking at the leaflet and you go, oh, well, that's quite common, that's mm -hmm. quite a bit less common, really rare. I mean, you, I could have t ticked them all off. I seemed to sort of go through the list of, like, oh, yeah, there's that reaction. Oh, yeah, there's that trip to A&E again. And I know it sort of sounds a bit funny now, but I, it, yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, I'm sure you talk about it a lot on the podcast. It's around that trauma of mm -hmm. constant trauma again and again and again. So what was a reasonably normal um, treatment protocol was just a tough one to manage, I have to say. Yeah. Well, it is. It's having that, I mean, already you're 30. Mm. And you have bowel cancer, so that already puts you, you know, in that rare category. And then to continue to have rarer reactions to things, it's almost mm. like there's not really a foundation that you can sort of rely on. It's really, really good point, yeah. And I think, you know, we know it as people who've been through it, and we know it as people who talk to other cancer patients, and we know it as when we talk to our friends anyway at 30, is around about a time when lots of things are happening in your life. You, let's be boring about it. Like you might expect to maybe get married. You might expect to maybe have children if that's what you want. You might expect at this point to be either getting a mortgage or moving up your career ladder. All those expectations that are justified because you sort of see it happening around you. Um, and I think that, that there were two things going on for me, which was that, you know, you you sort of have to put all of that on pause um, uh, and and not forget that you were there, but just accept somehow, we could come on to acceptance of a whole other thing, but, <laughs> you know, that you're in this other place. But also when you're in this other place, it actually can be incredibly 
difficult. And this is where it gets really hard because not everybody has the same experience. Some people thrive off their, you know, the part of the illness or, or they don't have reactions or they don't need, or, or their reaction to treatment is okay or they don't need too much treatment. So it's, I hate to talk in broad brush, stroke, uh, brush strokes, but when it is difficult, it, you know, it can feel super difficult. And at the time, did you think that you were going to go back to the same job? Absolutely. And actually, it formed a massive part of my identity. I think I was a little bit arrogant because I just finished a master's in health psychology. And I think I'm pretty sure I knew what I was doing. I was sort of walking around, well, at one point in a wheelchair, you know, doing my treatment. But people would always ask what you do. And I'd say I was in the NHS. I'm a health psychology specialist in, you know, in training. And I think I felt like it gave me this sort of semi-status. I don't know why. I was like, yeah, I sort of know what's going on. Like, yeah. Well, when you're looking for a foundation, (laughs) when the world is turning into chaos around you and you're like, you know, having to frequently go into A&E, it makes total sense that there would be something that you would be hanging on to, something that you do, something that... You know, because I think that's the thing, not for everybody, but for some people, work is this um, real sense of of worth, of contribution or identity, and it can feed into so many of those areas. Absolutely, it does. At that age, especially, right? Because you're not expecting to retire or medically retire or be out for any period. Actually, let's get right to it. You maybe are expecting to be out of it because you maybe think you might have children and you'll be on maternity leave. That's, mm-hmm. And I know that to be that common, especially among women um, and especially among the people I coach because we talk about it a lot. It, it's this, it's this, wait a minute, I thought I was going to go there and now I'm off, but for different reasons. And at, at many points, people feel like they're retired because you're kind of, well, I don't have anything to do other than get better. And sometimes you might have good days where you're like, mm-hmm. I mean, I used to... I was living in West London at this point. I used to go to Westfield. Um, I loved it. It was like my haven. Monday morning, Westfield, no one there. (laughs) And at the time, I was trying to fatten up. So I was told to eat all this stuff. So I'd go into Starbucks and I'd be like, I'll just have a cake. And I mean, that's not great diet advice, is it? But, you know, when you need must. When you need. Um, So absolutely, you've used the word identity. And it's it's really true. It, It is what we say about ourselves is what we hopefully feel about ourselves Mm -hmm. it's where we get our confidence it's one of our anchors work is a really important part of our um not just social standing not so we can just talk to other people about it but feel anchored in ourselves it's part of our resilience um and so i wanted to get back because i i was on this semi nhs type trajectory as well i was like no i really enjoy this work i want to be doing this so Plus, I was very lucky as well, of course, NHS, um, and it's still the case now, it's very good sick pay. Um, I'd been there long enough that I'd accrued enough to, to be quite safe. It was at the time that lots of things were going on around. So Andrew Land- Lansley came in and sort of like changed all public health stuff. Um, he was the MP at the time, health uh, secretary, and it was around about the time lots of changes were being made and lots of redundancies. So I was actually off sick when all this chaos was going on. And I was like, oh, it's probably best because... I'm a little bit too... I would have got really, really into it and been like, are we keeping our jobs? You know, Mm. so I was out of it in another way and then came back to a safe job. Um, But I can reflect on it now and say that despite having... It was, I think it was something like 15 months. I mean, that's pretty exact. It was 15 months I had off work. Um, And that's reasonably long. Mm -hmm. I'll talk to people now who don't necessarily have that long off their one piece of work unless they've changed jobs, for example. But I shouldn't have gone back then. I wasn't ready. 
How did you know that? Like, what were the signs? I still had an open wound in my stomach, <laughs> number one. Um, I just wasn't well. I wasn't well enough yet. I was really putting myself under loads of pressure. I was tired. I was quite angry and I've talked about this a bit and it's quite an interesting part of it I was just angry that I was had to go through all of that and I was angry I wasn't better yet I was really holding on to this like I haven't been a very perfect cancer patient I've been a bit of a non-perfect cancer patient like I haven't run a marathon and I haven't (laughs) and I look really feeble and I'm not making money for charity and I was just like I'm just really angry um so I knew I wasn't ready because I felt pressure. And and honestly, of course, I've looked back at it and that pressure came from me, really, and no one else. But that's where it comes from. And we do. We just pile it on, don't we? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And what is it about that haunting figure of a person with cancer doing a marathon that just like we used to just beat ourselves up with? I cannot even tell you how many times because I've done it's, that. Because it's really socially praised. Rightly so, because it's yeah, an amazing Yeah, it is amazing. Thing. But I think that we, um, you know, we probably, we are all achieving amazing feats, even by being very quiet. And that's something that we, we can all hold on to, cancer or not, right? That's like that's like us in the social media world. Just because you're not posting every day or telling people everything you're doing doesn't mean you're not achieving stuff or doing stuff really well or having fun doing what you're doing or impacting people's lives in some way. And that just that's like a you know global message (laughs) so when did you decide to change it up um when I discovered that my work weren't going to let me go part-time which is interesting because I've since looked back at this and thought well uh I probably could have thought that and you know worked a bit with the system um to to get part-time because I should have got reasonable adjustments However, I just knew that I wasn't well enough. I was like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm here to sort of just be at work and then go home. We'd actually moved out to Surrey at this point, so I was commuting. And at that point, it was like, I'm not well enough to commute like this and work in, in this way. Plus, I, I went, it was the messages that were coming at me when I was back at my desk. Um, and, and they were pretty hard, to be honest. I was still looking at all this bowel cancer prevention stuff, and it was just a bit too much. Yeah. And I just got some, it just, comments that if you're resilient and you're feeling happy and well that would roll off the what is it roll off your back yeah roll off a duck's back thank you (laughs) my back or a duck's I don't know um you know would have been forgotten but unfortunately you're not in that place when you're not feeling resilient or happy or or armored up the comments that come at you really have a huge impact like how long have you been off work Emily oh it's about 15 months oh it's just like you've been on maternity leave isn't it um and, you know, I'm happy to share the other rarity about my situation was that I was pregnant when I was diagnosed. And so I had this other whole psychological thing going on about, whoa, we've lost this pregnancy. I've now got this cancer to deal with. I've now got to go back to work when I should have been on maternity leave. Yes. So, yeah, that is part of my own story. And it, it just was too much. It was too much. And I recognised it. And I was I was rushing and angry at home. I was like, this isn't a way to heal from cancer at all. It's not at all. So um, it took me a little bit too long to make the decision to leave. Um, But me and my husband, in fact, my husband was kind of like, you need to leave. (laughs) You need to leave. You're not well. This isn't right. You're not happy. And I was like, but I've got to prove. I've got to prove that it's fine. And I'm back to normal. And Mm. I am who, and I can say, um, you know, this person who's done it kind of thing. And that's just ridiculous. 
Um, so I decided to leave there, but also wanted to go on to a different project. So I actually moved into some different projects in, in less um, full-time work. I went into uh, Carers UK, which was a great place to work. And then I actually moved into working with Macmillan. Um, but, and so that probably took about two or three years. And at that point, I was going through some more changes myself. My whole body was still healing. My brain probably, as much as I was trying to help it heal, I saw specialists. I was very open and honest about needing help. Um, I just, it just was this idea of the, like, you know, the cancer impacting me even years down the line. And I felt like this wasn't right. And outside of that, I'd also been thinking in the background, when I'm ready, when I'm well, and when I'm okay, because I knew that that needed to happen, I had seen the massive gap that I had experienced, which was I didn't always want counselling. I wanted somebody to help me sit and think about my plan. I wanted somebody to like, almost like lay it on the floor with me and go, well, where do you want to go? What choices do you want to have? Like, How do you feel about those things? What do you value now? Where's your confidence? What do you feel strong and resilient in? Likewise, where do you feel like you crumble? And what situations do you know make you feel less strong and, and weak? I wanted somebody to do that with me, and so I found a coach. Um, she was amazing, but she was very much a career coach, which was fine, but I realised... I was like, you know what, this this is interesting. What happens if we could develop a cancer coaching service that is is around using, you know, the experience? Yes, my personal experience, but hopefully my professional background, as I said, when I'm ready, uh, to help people to do that themselves, to, to, yes, change their career, but maybe it's other stuff as well. Maybe it's to talk about fertility options. Maybe it's talking about relationship issues with the context of understanding cancer behind it as well. So there's so much in there. I mean, <laughs> one of the things um, that the points that you made is that the, the length of time that the impact has. You mentioned it was like several years later, and I think people, do, you know, there's such a rush to go back to work and and prove that you're back for some people um, that there is not necessarily and a lot of space for people several years down the line for things to hit but of course there are those long-term impacts the family that you had expected to have yeah. the um you know the medical security that you expected to have um the income maybe that you expected to have that that actually years afterwards you're still dealing with those ramifications yeah. and can still you know, need help. And I know that you're running now a um, working after cancer mm. for Shine Cancer Support. Can yeah. you tell me a little bit about that program? Yeah, well, when I decided that this was something I was ready to do, and like I said, I really tried to be as honest, I guess the word is authentic about this as possible. I wasn't just trying to, I'm going to help other people because I'm I, I really struggled with the part of like I didn't want to help people because I was struggling I didn't want it to be like I'm going to help you because I, I need to feel better about myself if mm. that makes sense I was so really really just wanted that to not happen so I needed to get better which I did you know to an extent and then I started my own coaching training and that was when I was looking for participants so I approached Shine who I'd been sort of semi-working with volunteering with since you know they started um, which is how I know you as well and I just said look what about I have to 
um, get participants for my coaching school. Um, and if you're interested, why don't we do this as a coaching pilot and see if it kind of works and see what people's before and after effects are. And Shine very um, graciously said, yes, let's do it. So we had about 10 participants. Um, um, we advertised for it. And that was about two and a half years ago now. Um, and it was just this lovely way of building up a programme, which we've now built up further, in order to help people at a point in their lives where they know they want to move forward from something. So, you know, the programme is designed um, so that people get a certain number of sessions. They come with a few goals um, and we get to work on those goals really clearly. So the thing about coaching is that it is quite defined you generally work on things that the person is really wanting to change it's not so much about let's look at your childhood and let's analyze it all and pull it all apart although I have to say we do end up talking about some of those things because how can you think about beliefs or your confidence to get that job or write your cv or start whatever it is you want to start unless you kind of understand somebody's thought patterns and Mm -hmm. where they've come from but the whole idea of the programme is that somebody comes with this idea of a goal, we get really clear on that goal, and then we go, how are you going to get that goal? And, you know, in the coaching sessions, that's what we work towards. So it's building people's confidence, um, acknowledging what's happened to them. They might want to talk a lot about the cancer, and indeed they may not want to. It may not form part of what the coaching, which is equally fine. Um, and it's about really moving people forward. So it's like looking ahead. And with cancer, you, you know, it's that can be risky for all of us because we, we've been so potentially shocked by what's happened. Some of us won't ever get over it and we're living with it. Um, others are, are feel, you know, the fear and the anxiety of it coming back again, very strong. Um, and others still, maybe, maybe you know, like that, they're kind of done, but it's still in the back of their mind that this thing has happened. So we're all dealing with this trace of memory. Either mm-hmm. it's very present still or it's in the past and we're moving away from it. But either way, we still want to know what we're doing next week or next month or, you know, in, in six months' time or in four years if that's relevant for us. And I think that's where this programme is really important, right. despite and cancer. And you kind of need people around that understand that because I think when you're talking to other people, just, you know, thinking about six months or a year into the future can be so terrifying. Um, And stepping out of your comfort zone can be so terrifying because, again, we're like trying to find, you know, you know, sometimes in in magical thinking, you know, but we're trying to find safety. Yeah. And, you know, so we do things and we maybe hold on to places or things that we've done, you know, to kind of wrap ourselves up in. And I think it's really important to be able to talk and also understand that, yeah, just even thinking a year ahead, that can be terrifying. And that's okay that it's terrifying. Yeah. And, And sometimes just even knowing that. I think there's something powerful. there about yeah it, it feels powerful actually and you're you're also uh, you know as a coach my training allows me to talk about psychology related stuff but I don't sit there and diagnose someone if I think they've got a mental health issue however it's impossible not to talk about those things because anxiety PTSD depression um, trauma come up all the time in this work because you're naturally dealing with someone's stuff you know you can't mm-hmm. ignore it actually I think I'd be a bad coach if that was ignored no I wouldn't be a bad coach it just wouldn't be the style I think is appropriate for this work so um, you know 
it is about looking despite those things, despite maybe having an anxiety disorder now as a result of your cancer, despite maybe now having trauma, where do you still want to go? Mm. And that's quite like, whoa, you're, whoa, I've been living in this like tiny little world of hospital. I've been controlled to the nth degree. Uh, I've been let loose. I'm shocked because I just thought I would be really happy and now I'm really confused about this. And you're telling me I'm allowed to think a year ahead? Like, what? You know, where you maybe have only been thinking about next week because you've got seven appointments you need to fit in and you need to pay for parking that you've got a speed ticket for, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, so it's actually really freeing uh, and at quite... Uh, what, I'm doing this with my hands. What am I trying to say? What's the word? It's like quite relieving, I think, you know. In the coaching sessions, we, we laugh, we cry. Usually the other person cries, uh, as opposed to me. I'd be okay if I did. But <laughs> um, and it's it's about allowing ourselves to believe things could be different. So it's not about saying, get over the cancer now. It's all done. Put a line in, draw a line in the sand and like move on. It's like, all right, we know, yeah, this happened. I absolutely hear you. And it's still going on for you, maybe. Where do you want to go, even with that feeling? Even with that, like, what do you want to do? And we're going to talk to George who's going to share with us what he did with those feelings. Amazing. <laughs> Not once, but twice. Yeah, my goodness. This is Not Your Grandma's Cancer Show. We're talking about working after cancer. And we've got George in the studio right now and Emily. And George, you've been through cancer twice. Um, Tell me what was going on in your working life the first time. Okay, so the first time I had actually not uh, long before... uh, finished university um i so how old were you uh, i was 23 uh, left uh, fin- did my finals left university in the july of that year and thought as many people do great you know I've, the world is my oyster i'm ready to to take it on and do lots of amazing things um but i did have a few niggles that on their own didn't seem particularly important um but uh, I managed to get a fantastic job. Um, I've always been a, a massive uh, lover of books and reading. And I found myself working at uh, Literary Review in this wonderful sort of Victorian office with a sort of slightly creaky wooden staircase leading up to it, uh, piles of books everywhere. It was, it was amazing. Um, and I thought, yeah, this, uh, yeah, I've done pretty well here, pretty happy. Uh, pay was not... Uh, great to say the least but um, it was just a wonderful wonderful place to go uh, for a first job Um, and yeah I was thinking yeah this is good and then there was even a possibility it was very small staff and I was the editorial assistant um, and the deputy uh, uh, editor was talking about hmm, how he had some ambitions to move on quite soon. And I was thinking, wow, this could be amazing, you know, because I'd have a chance if I'm working there already. I'd have a chance of uh, potentially being deputy editor of this incredible literary journal um, not long after finishing university. 
Um, You've described it so beautifully <laughs> that I almost feel like I can see the place, uh-huh. and I'm loving that job as much as you did. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> right there. Mm. But of course, um, my body or uh, cancer had other ideas, and it turned out that those niggles were more serious than I thought. So, after the first couple of months working there, um, I was starting to really not feel great. So I was working less and less, and um, going to the doctors a few times, uh, and was eventually uh, diagnosed with um, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Um, so I was rushed into hospital. Um, uh, by then, <laughs> I'd been spending most of my time um, sitting around uh, drinking coffee in, uh, in Cafe Nero or Starbucks and so on, um, uh, because I was not quite feeling well enough to work, but uh, needed to do something with my life. But um, this at least meant, right, we know something is going to happen. I, I never thought it would be anything like cancer. Uh, I always thought, oh, because uh, my iron levels were low, that maybe I just needed some pills or something mm-hmm. that would make me better, and then I'd get on conquering the world. <laughs> but no. So I was uh, diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia and needed to be rushed into hospital. Um, in fact, I remember getting there and the uh, second day I was given a, um, a booklet to read about what acute lymphoblastic leukemia is. And um, on the, in the first few pages, it said something along the lines of, if um, not diagnosed within a few weeks, uh, ALL is invariably fatal. And I thought, hang on, <laughs> I've had these symptoms for at least a couple of months. So all summer I'd been, been having these things. And um, so I thought, wow, it's it's lucky I'm here, I'm alive. This this is amazing. So um, I yeah focused on that, focused on the fact that I was still alive. I had all this treatment to do, um, and yeah, started what uh, turned out to be a long stay in hospital. Um, I, I think probably of the first thirteen months of my treatment, I was in total uh, an inpatient for about ten of them, maybe. That is a long time. It is, but it gave me a lot of time to. Uh, to think and read and um, uh, I I feel quite lucky in a way that my natural philosophy was to take things as they came so um, rather than thinking oh gosh yeah what's going to happen next week Mm -hmm. Um, yeah things like that I was thinking well I'm here today I've got some friends coming that's going to be great Um, yeah Thinking, thinking in, in those terms. Um, did you have presumptions that you would go back to the same job or did did you just push that totally out of your mind at that time? I think I had some idea that it would be lovely to go back there because it was a lovely place. But on the other hand, I realised quite early on that this uh, leukaemia business was quite a serious, a serious thing and that actually going back or trying to go back to something that I'd just started um, wouldn't necessarily have felt right. It, it, it almost felt as though um, the cancer should have some sort of impact on my life. And mm. um, and the fact, I, or, um, uh, the fact is because I either the, the pay wasn't fantastic, I was kind of just about scraping by in London, first job, um, staying with friends at a reduced rent and so on. Um, I thought, and I think particularly because I was 
in hospital for so long, um, it really made me think, hang on, um, I think when I do get out that I would like a fresh start, do something um, do something different, maybe a bit more be a bit more proactive about my career rather than thinking, oh gosh, yeah, maybe maybe one day the deputy editor will move on and <laughs> I'll be able to move into that. So it, it definitely had me thinking about what I wanted to do and, and I realized and as time went by and I was in remission, um, I was in remission fairly early on. So a lot of the sort of later treatment was just all preventative. So um, so in a way, I kind of knew I was um, had a decent chance by then of, of getting through. And uh, I thought, well, actually, I really enjoyed the sort of journalistic side of working at Literary Review. Um, I thought this is something I could do. I'd quite like to do something around that, um, but pos- but I don't really have any qualifications. Um, I'd, I'd studied modern languages at university, but I hadn't really got involved in the university newspapers or anything like that. And I thought, I'm not very well qualified. Um, I've been in hospital for quite a long time. Uh, it's going to be tricky to just get straight back into journalism and so on. I did I did try. I remember when I knew that I was going to be getting out of hospital, I thought, ah, you know, I'll, I'll pick up a couple of newspapers, look in some of the job ads for editorial assistance, that kind of the kind of job I I had been doing. Thinking, yeah, I've I've um I've done a bit of that. Uh, this, yeah, what, what's going to be the problem? I'll, I'll hopefully walk into one of these jobs, and of course, never heard back from anybody. <laughs> having uh, spent uh, about two months working after university, and then not working at all for a year and a half. <laughs> Were you asked about that, or did you have to include any information that disclosed that? This was one of the big challenges for me because I didn't really know how to approach it. Yeah. Uh, I, I recognised that uh, this gaping hole on my CV would not look great. And I was very aware that the um, people I would be up against, other candidates for the job, would probably either have been, either be coming straight from university, if, yeah, um, fresh, excited as I was when I, I left university, and um, or they'd have been out there doing a couple of years of work mm-hmm. and have that experience that I wouldn't have. Um, so I wasn't sure what to do, how to go about it. Um, I ended up actually talking to my dad, and he basically took my CV to his uh, the HR person at his um, his work, and. She came back and said, uh, well, <laughs> the thing about leaving a gap in your CV is that a lot of employers will assume you've been in prison. So I thought, mm, <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I shouldn't do that. So I uh, to try to tr- think of a way of, of, sort of filling it in. And I can't remember exactly what I put in the CV, but I do remember what I always tried to say. I tried to turn that experience into something positive. Uh, so I um, would say something along the lines of um, I have been uh, I was unable to work for 18 months or a couple of years uh, because of medical issues however this has only made me more determined than ever to make the most of every opportunity I have and mm-hmm. and, and that's true it's um, uh, how whether that would actually have convinced anyone I don't know uh, because I never heard back as I said from these jobs which looking back were probably a bit 
um, too high level. Um, or uh, I probably wasn't ready for anyway, even if I hadn't had a couple of years out. Um, so I thought, well, what, what can I do here? And the idea came to me that actually maybe some further education. So I, I did enjoy the journalism, but I recognized that I didn't really have the qualifications or the experience. So I thought, uh, why don't I look at doing a master's in journalism? So I, I found one that I liked the sound of um, at Goldsmiths. Um, and applied for it and uh, and got onto it so this was fantastic because because it felt to me uh not only was that a kind of uh, bridge between having that time when i couldn't work because i was ill and getting back into the world of work uh, but it was also almost almost a step-by-step process mm-hmm. so it was um rather than trying to dive straight into a new job having been ill for 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 so long, being out for so long. Uh, But it was also um, uh, a chance to actually not work yet, but learn a bit, a little bit easier maybe, get my head around things and then get out into the world to work. So to give yourself a bit of time and and be still, still have that momentum forward and structure around it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and that felt like a much more sensible and, and possibly gentler path back. Um, so so that's what I, I did. And I, I got the place. Um, uh, I, I did then, though, find myself with um, sort of four or five months uh, before the course was starting. Um, the course leader had suggested I try and get a little bit of work experience. So I, I went and got some work experience at the uh, local newspaper near my dad's. Um, But I also wanted to be back in London where I had come to after university and wanted to kind of start rebuilding that that life again. Um, So I was looking to find a temporary job over the summer. And this proved a little bit more difficult uh, than I expected. Um, Possibly, I think, because I had never expected to be in that position of just... Um, of, of kind of going out, finding a temporary job. Um, once I got that first job after university, I thought, oh, great, I'm, I'm sorted now. All my jobs will just flow one from the other. And now suddenly I had four months to fill, needed to earn some money, um, wasn't sure what to do. And um, uh, I, I remember going into lots of shops uh, on so Bond Street and um, German Street and going and saying, oh, I am... Um, you uh, um, any chance I could work for a few months? I wasn't very confident at that point because one of the things about being ill and being out of the world mm-hmm. for, the, for that long, in a way, is that you do lose your confidence, your self confidence. So I and I could recognise as I was standing there telling these people, and they're thinking, "Do, do we really want this guy to be <laughs> selling our things to people? He's, he's just he's not got that oomph, that that charisma." So and um, I think to be honest, I, I would never have been a particularly good uh, salesperson of top-end shirts or shoes or whatever it would have ended up being. I don't know. I always think of you as having oodles of oomph and charisma. <laughs> That's lovely to hear. But certainly at the time, it, it, um, that wasn't the case. Um, yeah. And actually, I um, I was very lucky in that I, I kind of put out some feelers with friends, um, with uh, old schoolmates, uh, and it turned out to be... Um, uh, uh, someone who 
had been to my school who heard on the kind of school network um, that I was looking for a job and he happened to be looking for someone his his organization um, and it was perfect it was four months um, somebody the fundraising manager of this charity had uh, gone back to uh, South America to look after her father for a few months uh, so I sort of stepped in and, and started doing that and that was absolutely fantastic um, I had been doing some charity stuff um, in the past before I got ill uh, and it was a really lovely fit um, uh, to the extent that actually um, uh, without wanting to boast too much I uh, got to the end and the the CEO was uh, trying to persuade me to stay he said oh you don't need to go off and do your journalism course so, <laughs> um, but to me it, um, uh, it really showed the importance of recognizing the people you know and the, the networks you have mm-hmm. when you are in that position of where 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 do I look where how can I uh, because not not only will there be unexpected opportunities there might just happen to be someone with looking for exactly the the, the kind of thing the the kind of person you are um but also um they knowing you if they know you or if it's a friend of a friend recommendations things like that that can really help as well because people be automatically understanding of the fact that you've just been in hospital, you've, you've had cancer, uh, that things might be a little bit different. Yeah, there's there's a lot in there to unpack, like how we feel about ourselves, how we feel like we present ourselves as well, like what what someone might assume when they look at our resume, um, that they might be thinking of prison, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and and then that that sort of early what i almost imagine is sort of uh, deer legs you know baby deer as you as you're like like a little fawn as you come out of that place and not only has everyone else been you know working during that time but you've you've had that gap everyone else has moved on and then what you did was you know sort of regrouped and then found other ways so it's like trying to think outside of that that pathway that you would have previously anticipated to to find your way back not just into work but into work where the ceo begs for you to stay <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. that, that is awesome and emily like how um how did you guys meet we met through the shine coaching program absolutely oh that had we met before we might have done maybe at an event. Yeah. Yeah. So you met after your relapse. Yes. So um, so after I I did my uh, my masters in journalism and uh, started got into a couple of uh, sort of sub editing jobs. Um, actually, for a couple of years, went and worked for the for um, as a civil servant. Uh, so that was a bit different, but ended up going back into into. The journalism world and and was working for a business to business publisher. So yeah, everything was kind of how I had maybe expected it to be that many years before before I got ill. Um, and I got past the sort of five years of um, uh, where I could call myself a survivor and relapsed six months later. So I was back in hospital. Uh, This time I knew I needed a transplant. Um, I was uh, struggled a little bit to get into remission, um, but uh, got there and had my transplant, Um, got out again. And once again, was was faced with the question of, well, what do you do 
with work now and and life and how do you kind of get back to what you wanted or what is it still what you wanted and things like that um and I was lucky in a way that my, uh, well, very lucky that my organization was very understanding about um, a, a good way to get back into work, a, a staggered return. Um, they were in touch while I was ill, checking how I was doing. Um, and it was when I started to get um, itchy feet, really, a few months, uh, maybe four or five months after my transplant um, that I felt uh, I you know, was actually ready to go back to work. Um, in the meantime, I'd been getting very involved with charities because uh, I think the first time I'd been ill, I'd finished and thought, oh, oh, I must help all these charities who have helped me and, and do a lot of that. And then just like run a marathon then George no I didn't mar- run a marathon in fact the first thing I was going to say when I came in here was don't worry I've not run a marathon <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah um but yeah, I, I not that we're opposed to marathons. No, absolutely. If you like cancer and run marathons, we just amazing. adore you so much. I commend, <laughs> I commend anyone who has um, run a marathon. Honestly, yeah. But uh, you're very unlikely to get me out there. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so this time, um, uh, uh, yeah, so this time, having had that relapse, having had the transplant, I thought actually, it's really important for me to tell my story to use my story to help others so I got involved with various charities um, I remember seeing a poster for Shine and thinking wow this is exactly what I wanted uh, eight years or six years seven years eight years ago when I was first ill uh, so that was perfect um, but also I did feel I'd need to go back to work um, I I think work is such an important um part of our identity uh whatever it may be however sort of small or large it it, because it can take up a lot of time um a lot of uh, a huge part of our lives we spend working so that's a very important thing um and as i say i was lucky that they were happy to give me this staggered return so i started i went one week for uh half a day and did that for a couple of weeks and then built it up to a full day and then two days and built it up until I got to the point of uh, sort of three and a half four days a week and I realised that actually that was too much for me I didn't have the same energy as I had had before my transplant and I said to them I think I'm going to have to go back and stay with three days a week and I thought that's great um, the job I'm doing can easily be done with me doing three days and someone else doing two days perfect and that's when it all sort of fell apart a little bit. <laughs> um, but also, uh, I had known already that I wanted to leave the organisation. So even before I'd relapsed, I was getting a bit frustrated. In fact, I'd, I'd said to myself, right, I'm giving them six months. So the, I'd had some promises from my manager. Oh, yeah, these things are gonna, going to get better. So I said, OK, if things haven't got better in six months. I'm leaving. And then, of course, four months later, I relapsed. And so that wasn't the question anymore. But it meant that I was going back to this organization that I knew I was Mm. not so interested, that I wanted to be moving on from anyway. Uh, But it felt a little bit harder now because uh, I knew I could only work part time. I wasn't sure how easy then it would be to go and find something else. Um, But also all this work I've been doing with charities and the the volunteering stuff, the voluntary stuff I'd been doing, 
um, made me realise that that was really the area I wanted to be working. Around about that time, um, Shine helped in a couple of ways, actually. Um, and one of them was uh, Emily's uh, pilot coaching uh, scheme, which I jumped at because it was exactly what I thought at that point. I know I want to change things, but I don't know how. I need someone to talk to about it. Um, so I, I uh, went for it, signed up, um, and that's how yeah how we met. And uh, the other thing that, that I also went to, uh, and I can't remember quite remember the, the timings of it, but um, was a working after cancer workshop, uh, which Shine organised with um, Barbara Wilson from Working After Cancer, um, and. I realized that my approach, um, when I realized that the company was not going to make the reasonable adjustments that I was expecting and, and rightly expecting, um, uh, because they were saying, right, yes, of course you can do three days a week, but you're going to have to move from the role you've been doing that you worked up to after three or four years of work, and you're going to have to move back to the most boring, most simple uh, role that you were doing when you first started. And um, and I think they assume, and so they kind of presented this to me in a kind of, oh, aren't we being helpful and kind? We're saying you can work three days. Um, but it was really important to me how far I'd got within the organization. Yeah. In fact, I'd reached that point. And, and so I was, so I almost just fell into the trap of just meekly saying, oh, yes, great, thank you. Uh, but I talked to, talked to a couple of people and they said, why? And so I went back and to their great surprise said, no, <laughs> I don't accept that. Um, and I ended up having a big fight, really, with, with um, the head of my department. Um, uh, it was, uh, it, it it got uh, lots of different areas involved, um, HR. Um, the occupational health team at work was fantastic. There's a wonderful, wonderful woman there who totally understood my situation um, and supported me throughout. Uh, but the bosses wouldn't budge, uh, um, even though I was absolutely convinced and I put forward all sorts of arguments for why I should be able to carry on doing the job I was doing, the role I was doing. Um, it didn't need someone for all five days. It could have me on three days and someone else doing the two days. And in fact, that's how we'd been working since I'd been coming back from my, my So you weren't return. reinventing the wheel. Not at all, <laughs> no. not at all. And then when you talk about reasonable adjustments, I wasn't asking for anything unreasonable. This was... a very small adjustment that could easily have been made, but somebody had got into their head that no, this won't mm -hmm. happen. And uh, unfortunately, uh, they were quite stubborn about that. Um, so I was expending all my energy on this at the worst possible time, recovering from cancer again, recovering from my transplant. Um, already I'm only working three days because I don't have the energy to do more. And I'm having to, at the same time, put together arguments, uh, try to kind of fight for well, what I think I deserved and, and should and could be doing. Because above from anything else, I thought, well, actually, I'm really good at this. So you're, you're missing out as well, putting me on the sort of more banal mm. job that, that they want wanted to, to put me into. Um, but fortunately, uh, I did talk to Barbara and I talked to Emily and I remember Barbara saying, well, why are you wasting, why are you spending all your emotional energy on something that 
you don't actually really want. And um, and Emily helped me realize this as well, that um, I was being quite stubborn as well because <laughs> I'd known even before I'd relapsed that I wanted to leave this job. Now I was being told that I couldn't do what I wanted to be doing within the job. Um, but I was wasting so much energy and emotional energy and, and so on, on on fighting for something that I wanted to be leaving soon anyway. And that was really, that was a real revel- revelation mm. to me. Um, uh, I just, my head was in the wrong place. And this is why coaching can be so fantastic because it, it helps you work out actually, am I looking towards the place I want to be or am I just focusing on where I am and and yeah getting bogged down in that yeah and trying to find some security and some foundation and identity and all those things that get wrapped up and money yeah yeah, absolutely (laughs) they they get wrapped up in that so so I went to the working after cancer workshop thinking expecting to be able to say um uh expecting to get to get some more advice on how I could beat my my managers how I could out argue them and and went away going oh no, actually, that doesn't matter. I should be looking where I'm going next, what the next step is. And um, it really helped talking to Emily about this. And, uh, and you got your dream job, Well, yeah. You? So so mm-hmm. I, I worked out. Uh, we realized that I, uh, that I wanted to be working with charities and um, uh, in the charity sector and so on. And so um, I realized, well, actually... Uh, I need to do something towards that to actually get a little bit more experience. Because um, again, I didn't want to. Ju- I, it was difficult to just dive straight into something completely new where I didn't have necessarily have the experience. Um, and so I joined the well-being team at work, and suddenly work went from being this this horrible sort of dark place that I, I just wanted this to get point out as well. You literally, it was like on our second coaching session, you were like actually there's this new opportunity that's come up and you were so excited i remember that really yeah. clearly yeah and and so suddenly i thought well that's fine i can get my work done and then i can enjoy this stuff i'm doing with the well-being team which is seemed so much more important to me and gave me and, and meant that it wasn't a case of oh everything's going to be great once i get mm. out of here it was actually things should be great while i'm here and that's always been a really key way of my thinking when i've been ill was always saying well um, rather than thinking, once I'm out of hospital, everything's going to be great, I always thought, well, how can I make today great? And I hadn't applied that thinking to my work, and suddenly I did, and everything was much better. And, yeah, so I could then, in my own time, um, uh, start looking for these jobs, looking for these charity jobs. Um, and, again, going back to that sort of networking, that talking to people you know um, I happened to see that a friend of mine from university someone I'd acted with <laughs> um, w- had been working in the charity world communications world and I was all about words and copying content and that kind of thing um, and he'd won a couple of young social entrepreneur of the year awards and I thought this sounds really exciting really interesting got in touch with him and he said oh I'm looking for someone to look at our content and our copy (laughs) so that was fantastic amazing brilliant 
Mm, so, yeah. So now I'm working there. It's um, so, and I'm working with the charity sector, which in some ways to me is even better because rather than just focusing on on one charity. Um, uh, everything's always different because I'm working with lots of different charities. I'm working as a copywriter, um, and we we help small to medium sized charities uh, go digital, and make the most of technology. Amazing! Oh my god! Well, th- I think that's the thing as well. From having gone through this experience, it can give you time to reassess. You have to reassess all this other, th- all these other things and belief systems that actually you can come out with more to offer. And although there can be a time of a real lack of confidence, a real lack of, you know, feeling behind, which sort of been echoed, um, you know, where it is place in your life, mortgage, children, career opportunities that actually from all of that can come a greater understanding and a greater amount to give as well. So if somebody's listening to this right now, and um, they're thinking, okay, I'm at the beginning of all this, you know. Um, so if someone's at their first inklings of wanting to change things up, to tap into what's going on for them, what's like your your top tip that you would give them? Um, uh, for me, I would honestly ask them just to um, go slowly. It really, really is about not making rush decisions, potentially taking as much time as you can to work things out. Um, and of course, I've told you that I, I think I went back too soon, but this is, this is what I hear again and again and again. When you are in your 20s, 30s, 40s, you're expecting to be working, mostly. And so I think part of it is this, I've got this pressure that I feel I need to make a decision right now. Now, part of that pressure might be money, um, I'm not going to lie, you know, a lot of people need to go back. Of course we do. We have mortgages or rent to pay. So there are money factors to take into account. But actually, if we work out how much money we really need to survive or to run our household or to live a life that feels good to us, then we can start to play around with maybe a little bit more freedom. And either that freedom gives us some time to make better decisions or it gives us space that we can start to make good decisions without feeling overwhelmed. So really the word is space and time because you will feel like you want to make that decision really quickly and inevitably we feel like we've got the weight of the world on our shoulders. George's story, you know, I, I know most of it, but hearing him again, actually it reflects what a lot of us kind of go through, which is we, we're, our bodies are healing very drastically from huge amounts of like stuff that's happened to it and you heard George say he went here and he did this and he made these phone calls and he Mm -hmm. went for these interviews and then he did this thing and then he spoke to these people like that at the best of times is energy draining even though it's exciting it's like adrenaline right but you're using up so much energy when you do that so doing that on top of recovering from a cancer experience is just exhausting I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but just remember that's what's going on for your body Mm -hmm. and your brain is also kind of remembering how how I feel about all this stuff. So space and time, because honestly, there there won't be many other times in your life that you'll have it. It really, really won't be, unless you make it happen. Mm -hmm. So where you can get the space and time and allow yourself some freedom, ask yourself where the pressure is coming from uh, to not have space and time to make these decisions and then and then make great decisions as a result of that. I love that. And actually, um, 
if uh, you're looking for more resources, um, Shine has a whole working after cancer page mm. um, that you'll be able to see George's lovely face on because <laughs> <laughs> he's doing interviews there um, with Barbara, which is a bit more on the employment law side of things. Like today we were talking more about kind of the the emotional collecting thoughts around it but sometimes you know you, you want very specific um, concrete um, what companies are supposed to do and not yeah. do and and those interviews also um, cover that information and there is the shine um, coaching program as there well is. Yes. so thoroughly recommended <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much Emily and George for being on the podcast and hopefully you'll come back again soon thank you I'd love I'd to l- absolutely me too <laughs> it's been great <laughs> and uh, let us know what you think um, what your experiences are and obviously the working after cancer is a huge 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 subject so if you have something specific about it that you'd like covered in a podcast drop us an email info at shinecancersupport.org till next time see you later